0: And find your way with me to Psalm 24. We are still in our series on the Psalms. A few more weeks left. And yet so many good Psalms that we could look to. Uh, This one is a personal favorite. Someone said I've already said that a few times. So that's okay. You ought to live in the Psalms. You ought to let it be your partner and helper in prayer instructing you how it is to approach God, and we'll certainly see that in this psalm this morning. Psalm 24, hear the word of the Lord. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for He founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Father, now help us see. Not only hear, but help us see something of Your glory and majesty as it is displayed here in this text this morning. Awaken us to Your majesty. Awaken us to hunger for Your presence and to see and be satisfied by the glory that is revealed in the face of Christ for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This psalm is a liturgy of worship that was used by the people of Israel as they came up the hill to Jerusalem to worship God. It was written by King David probably to commemorate the entrance of the ark into Jerusalem for the first time. We read of that in 1 Chronicles 15, 25-28. It says that David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord to the house, from the house of Obed-Edom, where it had been in exile, uh, with rejoicing. And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, you remember when they tried before and didn't do it the way prescribed, a man had, was actually killed. But God helped. And so they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen. Uh, as also were all the Levites who were carrying the ark, and the singers, and Chananiah, the leader of the music and the singers, and David wore and linen ephod. So all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting, to the sound of the horn, trumpets, and cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres. It was a joyous celebration as the symbol of God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant, entered into the Holy City for the first time to the sounds of the praises of God's people. And so as we go through this psalm, I want you to picture this scene in your mind. Picture yourself as one in that great crowd, a drawing near to worship God, hoping to gain access to His presence, wondering if you will be counted worthy to enter the presence of such a holy and glorious King. So as we seek to gain entrance with them this morning, there are three movements uh, to this psalm. First, there is the proclamation of who God is in verses 1 and 2. Then there is the preparation of our souls to meet with Him. Verse 3 to 6. And then there is the presentation of the King in all His glory, beginning in verse 7. So, first of all, the, the proclamation. Who is this King of glory? Well, He is the sovereign creator and ruler of all that exists. Verse 1 and 2, "...the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for He founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers." In order to worship God rightly, you must first know who He is. For small views of God lead to weak and pathetic worship. But big views of God... Uh, fuel mighty praise. And the one that we draw near to worship is the biggest and the mightiest of all. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our schemes. He doesn't need lights and smoke and fog machines and all the silly things that we would want to prop Him up with. He needs no props. We just need to see who He is. And so the leader of this worship procession raises his voice to declare God's absolute sovereignty. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and everyone who dwells in it. Now what's the point of that? The point is, everywhere you look, everything you see is owned by God and held under His sovereign hand to do with it as He pleases. Look around you, what do you see? Go outside, look around, what do you see? Whatever it is, He owns it. As Abraham Kuyper has famously said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! He is sovereign. He is Lord. He is sovereign Lord, not only over everything, but over everyone. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness of it, the world and all those who dwell in it. As James Hamilton has said in his commentary, that means that there is no realm He does not claim as His own, no plot where His sovereignty does not hold sway, no corner or crevice where He will fail to enforce His will. Moreover, all living beings belong to the God of the Bible. No creature is autonomous. Neither fleas nor flying things are free from His authority. All humans in all places belong to Him, along with all rock badgers and rats and bats and bullfrogs everywhere. He is sovereign Lord. That means that there is no place that He does not inhabit. There is no safe space where you can go to escape His power. As the psalmist declared in Psalm 139 8, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. He is the inescapable God. He exists in Everywhere and everywhere He exists, He reigns. He owns all that He sees, and He sees everything. You know, so much for our silly vanity and our foolish insistence on our human autonomy, our own sovereignty over our bodies and lives. No, whatever power we have over ourselves is limited and defined by what God chooses to give us. Oh yeah, by what authority? By what right does God claim to own everything and everyone that exists? Well, by His sovereign right as Creator. For the one who makes a thing owns that thing. And God is the Maker and Creator of this whole inhabited world. That's the point of verse 2. It says, He founded it, meaning this world. He founded it upon the seas. He established it. Upon the rivers. That's poetic language. Remember the Psalms are songs, often songs of worship or prayer, but this is poetry pointing to God's creative ownership of every square inch of this earth that we live upon and where we have our lives. And David points to the inhabited world founded, he says, upon the seas. And that word upon literally means above. And so, all of this inhabited world, all of the inhabitable earth, everywhere man is able to place his foot and make his abode, God made it, and God owns it. And that means, really, at the end of the day, dear one, you truly own nothing. Not permanently. He may lend you a little piece of property for a few hours of your existence, but you're going to die, and He will still own it. And He'll take it when He chooses to take it. Nations may claim little pieces of earth for themselves, but only as He allows it, and He lifts up one, and He tears down another, because He owns it all, He is sovereign over everything that happens, and everyone who lives. And all of our thinking about God must begin there. This is the God we are seeking to worship. If this is not the God we're drawing near to, we're drawing near to an idol. This is the God before whom we must fall. Which brings us then to preparation. Who is this King of glory? He is the Holy God whose presence we seek. Beginning in verse 3 again, just picture all of us together on approach up the hill of Jerusalem longing to enter into those gates into the presence of God. And our worship leader cries out in verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? Now it's it's the right question. But it's a stunning Question. Who is worthy to enter in and worship this holy, magnificent, sovereign God? That very question is meant to provoke in us feelings of unworthiness. Who indeed? The holy place that he mentions here is a reference to that holy of holies within the tabernacle where God's presence dwelt. None could enter there on pain of death. Not even the high priest except once a year and then only by sacrifice to take away his sin. But the leader asked the question, Who shall ascend? And from the walls of Jerusalem, a priest shouts back the answer, verse 4, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. I believe if we were standing there that day and heard that our faces would fall and our hands would hang limp for who on earth can meet that standard clean hands and a pure heart really uh, clean hands refer to our actions our our hands are unstained by sin pure hearts that's our inner Thought life, our passions, pure within and clean without. A holy God requires a perfect righteousness, the very thing we do not have. Hands that are clean. Literally, the word is innocent. That means free from sin's stain. Are your hands clean this morning? Have they been kept back from sin? Have have you refrained from from taking hold of that which is evil in God's eyes? If you just imagine that God created man to be pure and holy uh, with, with, with His hands, with every bit of Him, but to have pure and holy hands unstained by, by the sins of this world, and yet this world itself is filled with sin like a sticky, grimy oil. It clings to everything and everyone who touches it so that anything you do that is contrary to God's will stains your hands with the grime of sin. Are your hands clean? I mean, look look down at them. Are they clean? Even this morning, as we have come together, together for worship? Or have you used those hands to swipe your phone and look at things you know your eye has no business dwelling on are your hands clean or have you used them to sling mud at a brother or sister the words that you've said or raised them in unrighteous anger or used them to punch and steal what does not belong to you or just flip someone the bird so to speak are your hands clean Are your actions holy? What about your heart? Is it pure? Jesus said in Matthew 5 Blessed, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Is that you? Is your heart pure? That means that your thought life is unsullied. Your mind is filled with righteous longings for the glory of God, not with lust or bitterness or selfishness or deception or complaining. I mean, what's on your mind? What was on your mind last night as you drifted off to sleep? Is your heart set upon God and His glory and how you might serve Him by serving others? Is that you? Are your desires pure? Are are the intentions of your heart to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? Or is your mind filled with schemes about how you can get what you want even if it means lying, cheating, stealing, defrauding? You see, if if that doesn't make you stop and consider who you are to be approaching this God, well, the psalmist continues, verse 4, He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. In other words, those who would come to this holy God to worship must never do so with a divided heart. That which is false here refers to the idols of the heart. I think one of the translations even translates this as idols. The point being... Don't try to worship God with idols smuggled in in your heart. Don't cling to anything that rivals God for the affection and control of your life. I mean, what idols have you smuggled in with you this morning? What, what loves Do you cling to that rival and prevent your full allegiance to to Him demanding your time and attention instead of Him? No, He says, leave your idols at the door. Cast them into the garbage. Burn them to ashes. Because you cannot serve God and earthly treasure. You cannot serve God and lust. Young man, You cannot serve God while bowing to the idol of self. Something has to go. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Me, Jesus said. Otherwise, otherwise you are swearing deceitfully. You are fake. You're claiming to be what you are not. Your mouth says, Jesus is Lord, but your life says something else is Lord. No, friend, listen. You must be all His or you cannot be His at all. Rather than lifting up your soul to an idol, uh, clinging to it as a rival to God in your affections, you must cast it down and with David say, I will lift him up. Look down in Psalm 25, very next psalm, first verse. I think it's well placed. Instead of lifting up the soul to idols, He says to You, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You are the one to whom I yield all. And so just to be clear, God requires for us to enter in and worship Him. And what He requires of us is a perfect righteousness. We must be holy because he is holy, first Peter one says. We must be holy to come and stand in his holy presence. And if that makes you tremble just a little bit, if that makes you question how you, a sinner, could ever come and be acceptable to him, if that makes that happen, then you're hearing me right. You're asking the right question. Like Job 4.17, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before His Maker? The answer to that question, the answer that our ears should by this point be longing for is found in the next two verses. Verses 5 and 6, He. He. Now we're talking about the worshiper who is accepted. He. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. These two verses are loaded with hope for those who would dare draw near to God through faith in Christ. Notice the language of receiving from God we didn't bring this blessing here with us in our pockets. We don't bring our own righteousness to put on display before Him as if we could somehow impress God with our worthiness. No, we must receive from Him what we do not have in ourselves in order to be counted righteous in His sight. We must receive from the Lord the righteousness... Our souls need. In fact, will you notice in verse 4 that it says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The He is singular. Listen, there is only one who has walked this earth in perfect innocence. There is only one who can lay claim to perfectly clean hands and a spotlessly pure heart. Christ alone is the true worshiper here. He alone has clean hands and a pure heart that God requires. He alone has earned those hands and that heart through His perfect life of obedience. He alone has put them on display in His sacrificial death upon the cross. And it is the blessing of His righteousness that He gives to us when by faith we come to Him. This is the qualifying righteousness that we need. This is the qualifying righteousness that we receive when we trust Christ by faith. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified, that means counted righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So listen, to, to enter in to worship, You must come humbly, willing to receive from Christ what you do not have in yourself. In order to enter into worship, you must come humbly, willing to receive from Christ what you do not have in yourself. Going back to last week, you must come with the prayer of Psalm 51 on your lips. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And as we do that, as we come by faith confessing our sins and looking to Him for what only He can give, here's what He gives. Verse 5, We, through faith, receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness in Him from the God of our salvation. By faith, drawing near, trusting in Christ alone, we receive these two glorious gifts that make it possible for us to enter into His presence. First of all, it says we receive blessing from the Lord. The word blessing has a wide range of meanings in Hebrew, but right at the center it has this idea of a gift, of an undeserved grace. An unmerited bounty from the Lord. Uh, The kind that we see in Numbers 6, 24-26 as the priests would stand and they would pronounce over the assembled worshipers, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. We have peace with God We can enjoy the smile of God, not as something we have earned, but as the gift of His grace. Ephesians 2.8 and 9, it is by grace you are saved through faith. This is not uh, your own doing. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. Those who come trusting God through Christ receive this blessing of His grace. And along with it, second, we receive His righteousness. Righteousness from the God of our salvation. Now listen, if you know the New Testament at all, this ought to make you dance. Like right here, this ought to make you jump up and at least want to. I know Baptists can't, but if you wanted to... Because this is a picture of justification by faith, counted righteous, not by works, but as a gift of grace. Romans 5 verse 17 says, "...much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ." And so you see, the righteousness that God requires... But you don't have. Christ has earned it. And Christ gives it away free to those who come humbly trusting Him. This is what prepares you to stand in His holy place and worship we come clothed with the righteousness of Christ by faith, presenting His clean hands, leaning into His pure heart, following Him into that holy place we would otherwise never be allowed to enter. I literally say, will pray this as I'm struggling with my own failures and sins. And I'll say, Lord, I come with Your cleanness of hands. I come with Your purity of heart. I come following You behind the veil into that place. You alone have a right to enter, but You've bidden me come with You. And you say, oh, pastor, you don't understand. You don't understand the depths of my sin. Maybe not. I probably do. Because I'm like you. but Maybe not. But I do understand the depths and the riches of Christ's grace. I mean, look again at that word receive. Verse 5. He will receive blessing from the Lord. And he will receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. You know what that word receive means quite literally it means he will be loaded down with he, he he will be given more than he can carry this is not a meager little dispensation of a tiny grace that may or may not be enough to cover your particular sins no it says he piles it on he overwhelms you with it more than you'll ever need infinitely more so that as you come near with a heart that longs to worship, mindful of your sin, confessing your sin, as 1 John 1 9 says, there is enough and more than enough in Christ to cover all of that sin and usher you into God's presence, where Christ stands on your behalf and pronounces you are clean. 1 John 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's why verse 6 says, Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Such is the generation means this is what God's people are like. This is their genealogy, this is their DNA as God seekers. They've tasted his grace and they keep coming back for more. They've been given access to his presence and they want more. They want him. Isn't that true? Isn't that what keeps you coming back week after week? I hope you don't come back here each week thinking you're somehow earning points for heaven by showing up in this room. There are no points. There is no earning. There is only trusting. In the heart of those who are saved by grace long for more of the presence of the Savior. They seek His face. Notice that. Not His hand. That They're not just here hoping to get some stuff out of God. Who cares about the stuff? Uh, the true worshiper wants God Himself. His face, His presence, His smile. Is that you? Are you a God-seeker? Have you gotten a taste of His sweetness and salvation so that you hunger for more? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus said, for they shall be satisfied. And He says, those who seek the God of Jacob, or you could translate it, those who seek Him like Jacob. Do you remember Jacob? Jacob? What a mess. I mean, don't try to pattern your life after Jacob's. It'll mess you up. You know, I don't see shirts, you know. Um, What would Jacob do? Well, he'd get in trouble is what he would do. He blew it in so very many ways until God's mercy and grace got hold of him. One night, quite literally as he found himself wrestling with God in Genesis 32. And in the midst of that wrestling, Jacob cried, I will not let you go until you bless me. God, I want You and I want all that You have to give and I'm not turning loose until I have it. And God gave it to him freely. Listen, the Lord wants to be found by His people. He longs to draw us near in worship and fellowship. And He has provided everything we need in Christ to come. And He bids us to come by faith and to receive from Him. Which brings us to the third thing, and that is the presentation. The King of glory comes to reign in joy over our redeemed lives. Verse 7, again, We're standing with that crowd of worshipers just outside the gates of Jerusalem. Now, we've come up the hill and we're at the gates. But the gates, we find, are closed because none may enter except those who are holy in Christ. And so our worship leader stands at the head of our line and he cries out to the gatekeeper, Lift up your heads, O gates! Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And so just get this picture in your mind. When the kids, use your imaginations. You're better at this than most of the adults sitting around you. Just see this scene. We're standing before those ancient gates. And they are ancient. Even in David's day, Jerusalem was very old. And the cry goes out, Oh gates, lift up your heads! But gates don't have heads. It's symbolic language. And the gates of Jerusalem didn't lift. They weren't a drawbridge. Again, it's symbolic language. To lift up the head was a way of saying, rejoice, be glad, celebrate, and open wide. Why? Why? Because the King of glory is here and He wants in. And that word glory, oh, I wish we had time to look at this. It means weightiness. It symbolizes something of ultimate importance. It's weighty. The most important being in the universe has arrived at the gates and He wants in. Open them. Notice, by the way, He has arrived at those gates with us. He is now in the crowd with us outside those gates. Now, historically, that's probably having to do with the fact that David and the priest had the Ark of the Covenant with them and they were bringing that symbol of God's presence into the city for the first time. But I think spiritually there is truth for us preserved here as well. For this God marches with His redeemed people. From the moment Christ saved us, his presence dwells with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us, and we are now privileged to enter into his abode with him, him marching at the head. And so we cry out, Lift up your heads, O gates! Be lifted up, O ancient doors! That the King of glory may come in. And from the wall, a priest answers back in verse 8 Who is this King of glory? Who is this weighty king that we should let him in? Identify him for us. You understand it's not a real question. They don't ask this question because they didn't know who it was. It's actually part of the ritual. Because it provides an opportunity for the presence of the king to be officially announced. Like when the President enters into the House of Representatives and they say, Hear ye! Hear ye! The President of the United States! And here it is. Who is this? Oh, won't you tell us who this is? Verse 8 responds, It's the Lord Yahweh strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. This is the God who reigns. This is not a paltry little passive God. This is not a wimpy little inner deity hidden away in the clouds somewhere. This is the Almighty, All-sovereign, All-glorious God who reigns over the universe. This... Is the God who is worthy of our praise and worthy of our adoration and worthy of our obedience. And for us in the New Testament, we understand this is Christ. Second Corinthians four six says, We see the glory of God, this glorious one, we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Verse 9 and 10, the ritual is repeated. We shout again, Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And we hear the answer, Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And again, it's Christ. Ancient doors. Interesting, can be translated entryway to eternity I love that the entry to eternity and we we can see in our mind's eye through the New Testament Christ ascending to the Father's right hand at the end of the Gospels to reign there on our behalf and to prepare for us that place where we will enter eternally into His presence and He is the Lord of hosts. Notice that change. The Lord of hosts. Literally, the Lord of armies. The all-conquering Lord Sabaoth, King of kings and Lord of lords. And again, we have this picture of Christ's ascension, both at the end of the gospel where he presently reigns as king, but also, don't miss it, the glorious second coming of the king to take his people with him to the eternal celebration of his victory. Revelation 19, 11-16 pictures that. John was there in the vision and he said, I looked and I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. So here is the Lord, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which He is called is the Word of God. So we know for sure this is Christ. And the armies of heaven... There's the armies. There's the hosts. The armies of heaven... This is us, the redeemed. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. And from His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. And He will tread the winepress of His fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord... Of Lords. This is our Christ. This is the one who has come and is coming again. This is the God we worship. Not because we are worthy, but because He is worthy, and by His blood He has purchased our lives. And so we bow. Will you bow? Have you bowed? The knee... To this One before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess, we bow and we draw near to worship not in our worthiness, but by faith in His worthiness and faith in His promises and faith in His Gospel through which we are counted clean of hand and pure of heart because these gifts He gives us through His sacrificial living, dying, and rising again. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're not celebrating us. We're not pointing to our worthiness. We're looking to Him and we're saying only by faith faith in this Christ and what He has done. Amen? Father, prepare us now as we see Christ even more clearly in these tokens that have been given to us to remind us that the King lives and reigns forevermore and saves by faith alone the one who trusts in Him. Amen.